0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos, and if you are relatively new here or live streaming, new to live stream, my name is Chad Donahoe, and we are currently in a series in the Minor prophet. so we are in the third Minor Prophet this morning. My plan is to take up a new Minor Prophet each week, and by the way, I am taking them in order, so feel free to read ahead. There may be one exception to that, but if that happens, it'll be a surprise. Why the minor prophets? I'm just going to recap from a few weeks ago. Uh, Why the minor prophets? Aren't the minor prophets, you know, minor league, so to speak? And the answer is no. They're no different than all the other prophets. They're just minor because they're shorter. So they're not inferior to Isaiah, for instance. And for many Christians, uh, the Minor Prophets tend to be unfamiliar territory. Maybe your Bibles are pretty clean, so we hope to get them marked up and scuffed up as we walk through the Minor Prophet series. And Minor Prophets are timeless truths, truths about God and His character, truths about our sin, our only hope. Timeless for the Minor Prophets, for us, these truths that we need to hear and also, I knew that the women uh, were studying the Minor Prophets uh, doing a series at the same time, so I thought that be a, might be a nice dovetail as well. So what is the role of the Minor Prophets? If I could explain it this way, if I could illustrate it. Um, so when my youngest son, Ty, uh, when he was a toddler, he did something, he did something wrong, he, and it was uh, basically uh, toddler wrong. So it wasn't necessarily a big deal. By the way, I shared this illustration a few years ago. You might remember it, but I think it's fitting to, again, look at the role of the prophets. Ty did something wrong. It was toddler wrong. Not a big deal. So I say to Ty, I'm like, hey, Ty, you need to come to dad right now. Ty does this. Shakes his head, backs up. I'm like, uh, Ty, you need to come to dad right now. Ty goes, Shakes his head, steps back again. At this point, Ty's older brothers, Peyton and Quentin, are observing this, and they're like, Ty, you need to go to Dad right now or you're going to be in big trouble. You need to go. Ty goes. Steps back again. So at that point, Ty's older brothers, Peyton and Quentin, go grab Ty by the arms, and they drag Ty before me, right in front of me. He's kicking and screaming the whole time. So there he is. At my feet, in a heap of rebellion and a heap of trouble, right? That's the minor prophets. So let's play who are the characters, right? So for me, I'm saying you need to come to me right now and obey. So I would represent God. Usually in most stories, I represent the sinner. Today, I'm God. <laughs> but then you have Ty who represents God's people, the Israelites, right? Right? in their disobedience to God. And then you have Peyton and Quentin, who represent the minor prophets, who their role was to remind God's people of the truth and seek to drag God's people back to the Lord. So this morning, we're looking at Amos. Amos is a shepherd whom God calls as a minor prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Amos ministered to Israel at a time when Israel was experiencing this great prosperity as a nation. And they thought that this meant that they were being blessed by God. What they didn't realize is that they were in a heap of rebellion and a heap of trouble with the Lord. That's what the message of Amos will focus on. So let me pray for our time in the word. And then we will dive in and as my normal practice, I'll take one of Paul's prayers and we'll adapt it and make it our own. So our prayer this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Father, it is our prayer that you would work in us, that we would live our lives in a manner worthy of your calling. And that we would do good works by faith and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. Lord, use, our, uh, use your scriptures to strengthen, encourage us, and challenge us in that way this morning. Thanks that you are with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are going to turn to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, as I've mentioned before, I usually take one section of the Minor Prophets and read it, and we'll go from there. So this morning, we're in Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into uh, Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour, with none to quench it for Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, He who made the Pleiades and the Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. In verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. But let justice, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So it can be helpful to summarize the minor prophets with, some of their major themes for instance a couple of weeks ago we looked at Hosea with the theme of spiritual adultery and then last week we looked at uh, Joel with the theme of the day of the Lord and then Amos the theme is pretty clear in Amos it's a theme of justice what does God desire for his people with justice and we all recognize, most likely, that justice is a hot word in our culture and in our, our Christian circles. What does biblical justice mean and what does it look like around us as we play it out? And so I just want to quickly lay out a wrong approach this morning and a better approach this morning. So the wrong approach in my mind would be this, huh? Let's see if Chad is on my side of what biblical justice is exactly and what it looks like. And maybe a better approach would be this. What does Amos and the rest of the Bible have to teach me about justice and the heart of God? And then what does it mean for my life? And that assumes that we don't have it all figured out because the reality is I certainly do not have this topic figured out. I do want to lay out, uh, as we go through some practical applications, but again, recognizing uh, as I myself don't have it figured out, trying to wrestle through in my own life with the conviction of Amos and studying it. What does this look like? What does this mean? But I recognize uh, nobody has this perfectly figured out except the Lord, because we do not have God's perfect heart. We don't have God's perfect eyes for seeing the world the way it really is. And so, um, my prayer is that we'll approach this with a humble posture this morning. And as I approach Amos this morning, recognize that it has nine chapters. So I saw two options. One would be to take one section of Amos, like chapter 5, and just camp out there and make a few, thought, uh, make a few major points The other one would be, you know, for us to take a road trip, starting in Amos chapter 1 and ending in Amos chapter 9. So buckle up. We're going on a road trip. So please turn to Amos chapter 1. And we will take some pit stops along the way asking this question, what do we learn about God's desire for justice? Amos chapter 1. Start in verse one. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which we saw or which he saw concerning Israel. So again, establishing Amos, prophet to the Israelites in the north. And then verse two. And he said, "The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars." Okay, that's oh boy. Right, that's how this this book begins, and this this uh, message, this roaring, goes across the land through the pasture lands into the very tops of the highest mountains. And then there is this pattern that is repeated over and over in this section, and it includes the words, "Thus says the Lord." We see that pattern repeated in chapters one and two. Eight times, thus says the Lord. It's, it's a reminder, a warning that the prophet is not speaking on his own behalf, but he is speaking on behalf of God. And then there's another phrase that's repeated multiple times. It's this phrase. For three transgressions of, and then a city is named, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Here's what this is. The phrase for three transgressions of, for instance, Damascus, that's our first one, and for four, is poetic, a poetic way of saying, for the many sins of this people, the Lord is going to bring judgment and going to bring punishment. And the cities that are named are Israel's neighbors, the Gentiles. The ones that are named are uh, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites and Moab, and to summarize their sins, it's all about cruelty to humanity. And because of that, God plans to bring judgment to them. So our first question with judgment is, what do we learn, or with justice, what do we learn about God's justice here? And the answer is, God desires for justice to extend to the ends of the earth. And even for the nations that did not bow down to him, they are, they were, and are still accountable to him. Accountable for what they knew. And this is where Romans chapter 1 is helpful. Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So many ways this describes these godless nations. I shouldn't say godless. They were filled with false gods. The nations that surrounded Israel. And they are uh, ungodly unrighteous. They suppress the truth, even though the very power of God is displayed all around them in creation. And they suppress it even to the point where um, against the fact that the law of God is written on their very hearts. We know this from Romans 2, that the law of God is written on their hearts. In other words, they know better, and they're accountable to God because They actually know better. But then we see the tension turns from these godless nations around them to God's own people. First, in in chapter 2, verse 4, first to Judah and then to Israel. So in chapter 2, verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and it goes on, that they are going to receive judgment because they have rejected the law of God. And what we'll find later on, and the other prophets will speak to this, God will bring judgment by way of of Babylon. But that's prophets down the line here. We'll get to those in upcoming weeks. So we'll focus our attention on Israel. And that's chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because... And I want us to focus with all of these other nations. The sections are pretty short. With God's people, it is the longest section. And just take a look at the sins that are named here. They're sins involving the corruption of justice, of sex, of religion. We see this in verse 6. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Meaning, most likely, that could be selling them into slavery to cover their debts, whether their debts are large, like silver, or debts are small, like for a pair of sandals. It goes on, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And then we see sexual sin. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. In verse 8, they lay themselves down besides every altar. These are altars of false worship on garments taken in pledge. We may look past that on garments taken in pledge. What's the big deal? There were God had established laws that if somebody, if somebody who was poor needed a loan, they could give the garment as an exchange, but the garment was to be returned to them at night. It was probably the only thing they had so that they could sleep and not be freezing cold. But they are keeping these garments for themselves, lying down on them beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Meaning it's probably an issue of bribery. And they're receiving these gifts and they're just living and enjoying off of the oppression and poverty of others. Allow me to make an understatement. This is very very bad and God's going to make it clear why this is very bad goes on in verse 9 and 10 he says yet it was I who destroyed the uh, Amorites before you and then in verse 10 and it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt so here's what's what God is saying I brought you up out of slavery out of the land of Egypt I called you to myself to be my people I even cleared the land of the wicked Ammonites. But look at your practice. You're following exactly what they do. And then the Lord says, I even gave you prophets in verses 11 and 12. I even gave you prophets to warn you and Nazarites as an example of holiness. But they corrupted the Nazarites by making them drink and they ignored the prophets. And then chapter 3, verse 1, this helps us to understand why Israel's disobedience is such a big deal to God. Chapter 3, verse 1, hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's saying, you only are the ones that I have known. And this known is intimacy. This is, you are my chosen people. And this goes back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, where this is what God declared to his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For, the, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's saying, I, I established you, I chose you. You are my covenant people. And even as I say that, it's this um, the significance of why is God calling them out? Why is God so serious with them? This word, covenant. And what is the covenant formula? I will be your God, you will be my people. So I thought about this, that if you did this and it was weak, and that was weak, (laughs) that I was actually gonna turn it into a teachable moment. So here it is. Um, Like the prophets, I warned you last week that I was gonna say, what's the covenant formula, and point to you all, and for obedience, you were to respond cheerfully. I didn't say that last week, I'm adding that. But what the covenant formula is, but you were not prepared, you were not ready, and so now you are under judgment. Now, I will give you a second chance at the end of the sermon, but I will say this, did you enjoy your donuts this morning? (laughs) Yeah? We'll see. We'll see. The covenant formula, covenant is stated throughout the scriptures, I will be your God, I will be faithful to you. Perfectly faithful, God says, and you will be my people. You're my chosen people. You are called to be faithful to me. This is obviously a huge deal to God. And then God's people and faithfulness are to display God's justice, His love, His mercy, His glory to the world around them. God's people are to be set apart, attract people to Him. And so, here again, what do we learn right now about God's justice? For God's people, we are definitely not exempt, but rather even held to a higher standard because God has revealed his goodness, his character, his law to us. And so God's people really should know better. Luke chapter 2 in in the scriptures, or Luke 12 in the scriptures uh, in the New Testament, Jesus says, everyone to whom much was given of much will be required. So God's people really are held to a higher standard. I often, with my own kids, remind them when I drop them off. I did it more so when they were young. Hey, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And, you know, half the churches raise raised my kids and helped them to know who they are, but it's that reminder, right? Remember who your God is. Remember who you are as well. And if I can just summarize the rest of chapter 3, It's a warning of cause and effect, that unless Israel repents, judgment is certain. And then, skip on down to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Chapter 3, 14. God says, on that day I punish, uh, that on that day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horn of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Here's why I read that section. So this names, uh, this names the insidious nature of Israel's sin. It helps us to understand a little bit more. And especially this place called Bethel is named And if I did my count right in the book of Amos, this place Bethel is named seven times in the book of Amos. And for Amos, place is really important, especially Bethel. Because if you recall, this is a little Old Testament history, if you recall, before the Israelites split up into two kingdoms, the north and the south, you had in the south... Uh, That's the kingdom of Judah, but before they split, it was all God's people. And what they had in Jerusalem, that was their city, they had the temple. But then when the kingdom was split and 10 of the tribes went north to to Samaria, they did not have the temple. And so what happened is the king over the northern tribes basically said, okay, I'm worried that if my people go down to Jerusalem, to the temple to make their sacrifices, they're going to end up joining the others. He did not want that. So he had this bright idea of making two golden calves and telling his people, Behold, your God's Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, when I was reading one of my uh, Bibles and came across this passage. I wrote this years ago. I put, really? Question mark, exclamation point. And he really did this because he must not have been a good student of his own history that the Israelites had tried this before, creating these golden calves and attributing, basically saying, this is, this is your God, Israel. And so one of the places Jeroboam puts one of these calves is in Bethel. So Bethel stands as this place of false worship. Not only that, in verse 15 that I read, God says he will strike the winter houses along with the summer houses. So God is, God is, is speaking against false worship, and he is speaking against this greed and wealth. And what's the issue with the wealth? He goes on in, for, uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, hear this, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, what we have to understand, Bashan had this lush pasture land for cows. So essentially, he was calling them fat cows. And he goes on to say, because you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. Essentially, they're feeding and getting rich off of the poor. So if I can summarize the rest of chapter 4, there's this repeated phrase. Five times it's mentioned, you did not return to me. God says, I did this, and you did not return to me. I've done this, and you did not return to me. Over and over, God's saying, I gave you so many chances, and you did not return to me. And then verse four, chapter, or chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and 13, says this. Therefore, this I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. Now, in verse 15, what we're going to find is this is creator language. Okay, who, who is the God they're dealing with? Verse 15, no, uh, 13, sorry. For behold, who who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads the heights of the earth, The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. We will find this creator language three different times in the book of Amos. And every time at the end, it's something like the Lord, the God of hosts, that is his name, to make sure they understand the God that they are dealing with. It is his world, he is the creator, we are the creatures. Worship and justice is to be according to his standards and not our own. And then chapter 5 gets to the heart of it. Look at verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. And then verse 7, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. That justice to wormwood would be like you turn justice to bitter fruit and cast down righteousness. Okay, justice and righteous, those two words together will appear three times in the book of Amos. And on the third time, I'll, spl- I'll talk a little bit more about it, but it is, let's just say it is not insignificant. Okay, then we get to verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. Again, here we have creator language. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness and darkens a day into night who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth the lord is his name here god is separating himself out he is saying a lot of people around you israel are worshipping the stars they're worshipping these gods that they think bring rain he goes no this is me i'm the creator of all things again in my words it's his world He's the creator, we're the creatures. Worship and justice is according to his standards and not our own. And then again, chapter five, verses 10 through 13, we have another list of sins of the Israelites. It says, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Okay, back then, the gates would be places where at times of peace, the gates are open, people would gather there especially the wise older men of the community to be able to give wisdom. It's basically saying these men are ignored at the gates. And then verse 11, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you should not dwell, them, dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards. You shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. By the way, does this list not describe uh, describe the scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament? You can understand why Jesus has such strong words for them. And then this goes on to verse 14. This is a summary, really, in so many ways of God's heart. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. This, what follows this now in the book of Amos, are three woes. Now, when we think of a woe... um, We can think of it as a mixture of judgment and sorrow. The first woe is in chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. But I'll just read a few of those verses. Verse 18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Verse 20, it is not the day, or is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Here's what this woe is about. God's people were longing for this day of the Lord because they thought God would put them on top of the nations. In their pride and arrogance, they thought no matter how they were living, they were God's chosen people. What they do not recognize is the day of the Lord is actually a day of judgment on them for their lack of obedience to God and his covenant. Then verse 21 through 23 gives us more. God says, I hate, I despise your feast, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them, and the peace offering of your fattened animals I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God saying, I hate your feast and your assemblies and your songs and all of this. And why is that? Why does God hate it? And I still remember sitting in seminary class when my professor used, uh, Dr. Collins, used a certain phrase. And it was like this aha moment light bulb. He said, the reason for the sin of the other, the reason behind God's anger is they did not embrace the covenant from the heart. Oh, so so often, we can talk in our days about receiving or accepting or embracing Jesus with all of our heart, right? But it was the same for them. They were to accept, receive, embrace the covenant with all of their heart, knowing that God is their Savior. As they looked to the sacrificial system and did those various rituals, it wasn't to be out of works, It was to be out of a heart that understands God is at work through this. And so, the idea here is they did not embrace the covenant from the heart. And further, we see in verse 24, But let justice roll down like the waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." Justice and righteousness, second time these are mentioned together. In other words, the whole law was summarized. Love God and love neighbor. So if you wanted to put this on a t-shirt, I would put, Christianity is a heart-based covenant relationship of justice and righteousness towards God and neighbor. Right? And maybe on the back, don't be a cow of Bashan, Amos 4.1. We have the second woe. The second woe is in six uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. It's woe to those who seek to live an easy, secure life and ignoring what is on God's heart. And I think about, uh, this reminds me, Francis Schaeffer, um, a voice of the past, a strong voice uh, for Christians in the past. And he talked about... Um, in a world that was given itself to humanism, like shoving God out the window. Schaefer talked about um, these two destructive virtues that people were landing on, including Christians. Personal peace and affluence. And by personal peace, what he meant is extreme individualism, the desire to be left alone, regardless of what one's own lifestyle means for others. And affluence things 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 as the measure of success it's the sin of our day it was the sin back then it is let me just get my own and i'm not as concerned about my neighbors the third woe is in chapter six verses four through seven what are those who lie on beds of ivory stretch themselves on couches eat lambs from the flock calves from the midst of the stall Sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruins of Joseph. Okay, so if we, were to, if we were to summarize this, the first woe is about empty religion. The second woe is about just trying to live the easy, secure life without a heart for what God cares for. And this third one is self-indulgence. Sleeping on beds of ivory, on their couches, eating and drinking the finest, singing idle songs. So likely this is a reference to David. This could be a reference saying, whereas David wrote these wonderful psalms of lament, they're just writing idle songs. As one author put it, so they will drift into hell, strumming and humming the worthless songs of culture. And it says they are not grieved. In other words, these sins grieve the heart of God, but they are not grieved. And then verse six, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 12 says this. But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wor- uh, wormwood or bitter fruit. And here again, this is where justice and righteousness are, are mentioned again in the same section or same sentence for the third time. So I just want to pause here for a second and just talk, uh, give some thoughts on justice. And, and here's my disclaimer. Talking about biblical justice actually makes me anxious. And it's not so much about offending people, but rather not representing the heart and mind Of God and seeing it as clearly as I wish I could see it but here's what it seems here's what seems clear to me from Amos three different times God talks about himself as the creator and uses language to get his people's attention the reality is it is his world he's the creator we are the creatures worship and justice according to his standards and not our own And we look at a short list from Amos would be that his people were not caring for the poor and oppressed. At times, it names the righteous, meaning God's people in their own midst. They were neglecting them, not caring for them, turning aside the needy, building wealth off of others in an unjust manner, doing all of our religious stuff, yet not grieving the injustices around us. Instead, we're too caught up pursuing a life of ease and self-indulgence. To sum up, not pursuing justice and righteousness. Again, those two words we find together, not just in Amos, but in other parts of Scripture, justice and righteousness, and together they make a point. And it's this, that when we think of righteous, that is God's standard. And when we think of justice, that's living out God's standard in the world around us. To put things right to intervene in a situation that is wrong, oppressive, or out of control, and to seek to fix it. And what is the biggest injustice of the world? The single greatest, if I can quote someone, the single greatest injustice in human history indeed in the history of the universe is that God does not receive receive the worship he is due So we have to understand, justice begins with God, it centers on God, and if we get this wrong, we get everything else wrong. So if justice is putting things right in the world, and the biggest issue of justice is God does not receive the worship he is due, then it is on us to pray for those who do not bow their knee and their heart to the Lord. It is to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is a message To be proclaimed and then we seek to live out the implications of the gospel in our lives around us in justice and righteousness and we're asking the question what does this mean for my life what does this mean for my money what does justice mean for my time for my energy what sacrifices am i willing to make we are the church gathered and scattered We gather to grow what it means to love God and love neighbor. We seek to put it into practice here, and and there's opportunities. Yesterday was a wonderful day of dropping off angel tree gifts to people who are in desperate need, right? We have opportunities like that. But as a church, we can't do everything, and we're not called to actually do everything. We are called to be nurtured in the gospel, to preach it, to grow in it, to create disciples but then the church is then called to scatter we all go out those doors and we go to various places spheres of influence we could say and asking the question what passions and opportunities do we have so Ryan Mayo handed me a book yesterday um, I only got a chance to read three-fourths of it yeah that's a joke I read the table of contents. Um, it's a book called Ethics as Worship, and just talking about various, uh, various things that, that are on the hearts and minds in a right way for Christians. And just think about this list. Um, there's issues of race, issues of wealth and poverty, issues of creation care, environmental stewardship, issues of prison reform, issues of abortion, issues of care for the elderly, and the list goes on. And the question is, what is on your heart and what is under your nose? What's on God's heart? What does he care about? And then how do we care about those things as well? And at times where we are doing the work maybe directly, In issues of justice. Maybe it's we're supporting others who are. You know, it is the person who is involved in foster care. Like, that is wonderful. Let me give you a $5 gift card to a place, hand it to you, say, I love what you are doing, and as I walk away, I'm going to pray for you. It's putting a pizza on somebody's door, and I don't know what it is, but we We're called to it ourselves and we're called to love and cheer each other on in the midst of it. Asking the question, what's on God's heart and what is in front of us? To finish our sermon, we still have chapters 7 through 9. But I can summarize this really briefly. Chapters 7 through 9 have five visions of judgment. If words if Amos's words have not got his people's attention, these visions are meant to. There's a vision in chapter seven of locusts. And in each one of the or the first two visions, the first one's locust and the second one is a vision of fire. Both these are judgment. And both times Amos pleads for mercy, O oh Lord, please forgive, and the Lord relents. And then we get to the third image, plumb line. A plumb line would be a tool that was used. You have a weight on a string, you hang it, and so that is um, true vertical. And so you could measure walls by it. And this vision of plumb line is showing Israel, your walls, your morality is crooked and you're going to crumble. You will collapse. And then we have uh, in chapter eight, this basket of summer fruit, basket of summer fruit, last of the harvest. Basically, it's over. God's patience has ended. The end has come upon his people, Israel. And if you can look in chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That means exile. And then this silence of the words of, of the Lord. It will end up being 400 years of silence for God's people. And then we have this vision in chapter 9. This is the Lord, verse 1, standing beside the altar. Now recognize in Amos, place is important. We began the book, He, uh, God roars from Zion. And then throughout the book, Bethel is mentioned, this place of of false worship, but now we're at the end and we see the Lord standing beside the altar. And this is actually a picture of judgment, likely commanding an angel to bring it down when he says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. So this is God's anger at the lack Of justice and righteousness and we see in this chapter you can't run or hide it is a day of judgment and it is day that is coming where is God's grace that day is not here yet the gospel is still to go out we are still to proclaim the gospel but the day is coming And then verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. The third time, this creator language. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourns, and all of it rises like the Nile and stinks again, or sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. And again, what do we learn? It's his world. He's the creator. We're the creatures. Worship and justice is according to his standards, not our own. And then we see in verse 7 this phrase, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? Again, reminding them of the covenant, of this covenant formula. What is the covenant formula? I will be your God and you will be my people. You've earned your donuts next time. This brings us to the table. What brings us to the table, I want to read verses 11 through 15. In the day that I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when, I, when the plowman should overtake the reaper, the treader, of grapes, or the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord God. So the question is, when will this take place? When will the house of David be restored? And this is an echo back in the scriptures to this promise, this covenant that God would establish after David, an everlasting throne. Right? And when will there be a remnant of people from all nations who are called by God's name? And behold, the days are coming, says verse 13. And when will there be this kind of earth, this new earth, where there's no curse? It's like Eden, only better. And God's people will be perfectly blessed. Because what we find is chapter 8, verse 11, holds true what follows Amos's words, behold, the days are coming when I'll bring a famine of the word. They do go into exile, and there is a 400-year period of silence. But then this glorious announcement from an angel to lowly shepherds in Luke chapter 2, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, joy." that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Later, John the Baptist will say of him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yes, this, this sacrifice, unlike the Israelites, this sacrifice was pleasing to God. So here's the glorious truth. And this is what we see at the table. At the cross, he took the punishment and he defeated our enemies. He reigns as king. And Christ is still calling people to himself. The Israelites looked at themselves as God's chosen people as a passport to privilege. And it is not. It is, an, it is a call to responsibility to proclaim the gospel to the world. And this promise that when he returns... He will usher in the promised land of the new heavens and a new earth. And Revelation speaks of this place as a marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we have here is just a taste for something greater to come. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body. Given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we declaring? That God is a God of justice and righteousness. And let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your grace. Grow us in the reality, the truth, that you are a God of justice. You are a God of righteousness. And you call us to justice and righteousness. Pray that you would also give us a hope, a hope that sustains us. So, Pray that you take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that you know, we know that you are with us and that uh, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is not the table of just our church. It is the table of the Lord And he invites everyone who understands themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and depend upon Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And all those who seek to live a life worthy of the calling of the Lord. And if that is not where you are, we are so glad you are here. We would ask that you not come forward and not take the elements, but to think about how profound the cross is and that he died to save sinners. If this is true of you, I would ask these two aisles, or it's two sections down this aisle, these two sections down this aisle, and as you come, you'll take a piece of bread, you'll take a cup, feel free to eat and drink at the table on the way back to your seats, Or when you are seated, but as you come, give thanks that we serve a God who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And please come.